Hi. Hi. Hi, hi Courtney with the dagger. Hi. And Gabby Nadine with the secrets. A dagger. Oh, wow. <laughs> it just made me look so sad. <laughs> yeah. I hear it's warm where you are today. It is very warm. I'm melting and I just shut the window because uh, it's noisy outside. So I'm basically in a sauna right now because I'm up in the attic. <laughs> so wonderful but stuff. There's no monkeys this time. There are no monkeys this time. And that is a win, I would say. Mm. Is it a win? Um, yes. Bush babies. Yes, it is. No, but bush babies are different to monkeys. Okay. Because the but monkeys are aggressive. And the bush babies were cute. No, the monkeys were not cute. The monkeys, oh, the were monkeys are not cute. The babies are cute, okay. but you can't get near the babies because the the adults are aggressive. Because the, so. the mom will get mad. I mean, yeah, the mom gets mad, but it's more like the 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 leading male monkey. <laughs> I don't know what is that called. The alpha. alpha. Uh, uh, that's it. The, <laughs> the alpha. alpha. The alpha male. The one with the blue balls. That one Wait, is aggressive. Wait, what? <laughs> what? Wait, oh, we're no. recording already. I, yeah. <laughs> what? It does. I mean, I have a picture. Okay, not only of the what? Balls, okay, so this is weird. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look you have a of picture the whole of monkey. The blue the, balls. Um, well, I mean, you can see the blue balls in the picture. Is what I mean. I mean, there's a yeah. difference between. I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> I um, feel like this says a lot about character with these um descriptions <laughs> and about and Gabby's audience. character. <laughs> Not enough blue balls. Um, I appreciate you, Nadine. I see what you're doing. You're bringing us back on topic, and that is wonderful. Um, because we're going to be talking about character and POV today, and also um loving each other very much because yes. we have some see, what people, wonderful people achievements can, in our group here. People can hear you saying that, Gabby, but they can't see you looking off camera, clearly scrolling through your phone, trying to find and a picture of a monkey with blue balls while Nadine Listen. is trying to steer us in the right direction. How dare you? <laughs> this <laughs> is how we are. This is who we be. It do be like that. Yeah. So... <laughs> Welcome to Story Beast. Yeah, welcome to Story Beast. <laughs> Should we say our names? Just in case. I'm Nadine. I'm Courtney. I'm Gabby. With the monkey with blue balls. No, I don't have a monkey with blue balls. I, I mean, you're looking for one right now. Um, okay, yeah, so you... character. All right. So, so my question. Came up with this. Yes, go ahead. did. I have I a did. question for you about how you choose your POVs when you're writing. So you come <laughs> up with your stories, and you look at me like, "What is that question from me?" Or you dag at me? <laughs> I think it really depends. Um, my last book I wrote when I first wrote it in third omniscient. Now, <laughs> that was. Um, not the best thing for my voice, but it was the way that I found the story. It was telling myself the story. And as I revised it, it became third person past, um, but close. So it was written with the names instead of I. And, um, but you did get into the character's head with internal thoughts. And the current book that I'm writing is first person present. It really just depends on the story. And I find you can't really figure that out until you draft a bit and see what it comes out like. And I thought I needed to rewrite my other book in first person, but thankfully after spending some time away from it and then going back and reading it, it was written in third and, it, and it, that book was supposed to be written that way. And I don't think I would rewrite it in first, even though I felt like, oh, maybe that is something that I need to do. Maybe that's why it isn't grabbing agents. But for right now, I feel like that book needed that way of storytelling. Hmm. So I'm hearing that because um, I was thinking about this earlier and I was thinking about how I choose my characters. And 
not my characters, <laughs> how I choose how to tell my story for my characters. And one of the things that cropped up for me first was voice. And so when I'm listening to you talking about like the, the different third person, first person, um, I'm also thinking a lot about voice and not in terms of the way that we as writers think about voice. Like, you know, we have our writing voice and our characters' voices, but in terms of like as a human being, how I think about how what, what my voice means to me and the, the kind of power that it gives me. And I don't mean like villainous type of mwahaha kind of power, but like the ways in which I express myself and how using that kind of voice and imagining that for our characters, because I feel like we have to do that in a way to make them real. And, and we have to respect them enough to be able to do that, to give them that voice. I think sometimes in my process, at least, I don't necessarily know whose story it is until I start writing it. And so some, like the last book that I wrote, it's uh, Dual POV. And I knew that from the beginning because I could see in my mind the way that I wanted the arcs to run and how I wanted them to overlap and mirror each other. And so that felt natural. But I'm writing a book now where I wasn't sure at the beginning whose story it was. And so I started out with a dual POV and I wrote a couple of chapters alternating and then realized it wasn't really necessary. It was one person's story. And that if it would spread later on and develop into a series of some kind, there would be space for another person's perspective and voice in terms of like their their human characteristic voice to come through in a different way. And how do we do justice by our characters in giving them that power to narrate the story and to guide us through their interiority and what they're experiencing. I love that. I also think it's worth mentioning that we all write a level of fantasy here, which I I just feel like it's important to note because when I think about conventions in the fantasy genre, we'll say that there's a large number of fantasy books that are third person close third person omniscient and I think that as a convention within like specifically the fantasy genre you will see a lot of that I have written uh third close with multiple point of views I think that can be super useful especially when you're doing world building from different perspectives right so I I think it's very useful to show the world through different lenses. And I love doing that in a fantasy book because I think it's a really useful way to explore conflict and escalate tension. So, um, you know, like giving one character information and we know it's coming and then we have another character doing something else and um, maybe they don't even agree with that. And we know that, you know, the, the town is coming with pitchforks and then they're having a romantic dance. I don't know. Um, But anyway, it just adds like other layer to different scenes. And I also think that when thinking about character and point of view, you know, to that point, you can hide things, right? Um, So that's something that is extremely exciting. So like I said, I've written, um, you know, third close um, with a multiple POV. And the book I have coming out is first person present. And it's one POV. But, you know, I'm, I'll be curious about when I get to um, to book two, if, you know, what I'll end up doing. Because, again, I think it's, you know, decisions like that. It depends on what's going on in the story. Also, I think there's, it's just worth mentioning, like, what do readers want, too? They don't always get what they want because sometimes we have reasons. But I do think it's worth mentioning that, like, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, fantasy romance, romanticy stuff. Like, I love that. And a lot of that is uh, first person present or first person past, which is um, actually why I chose to write it in the style that I did. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself as well when I first started writing to have it figured out. Like I had to choose either third person or first person, and that would determine the entirety of my career. And you don't. (laughs) And I know that now, but back then it was just so stressful. And I did write a little bit first person. I did write a little bit third person, but I felt like third person flowed better at that point in my writing life. So I went with it. And I had also kind of put in my head like, 
oh, I can't write first person. I can't write first person. I can only write third person. My brain just doesn't work that way. And I finished the book. I revised the book. I started querying the book. And I just needed a new project. And I was so scared that my voice would sound like my other book that I just had to try something entirely different. So instead of third past close, so third person past tense close, this one is first person present. And so I had to change the entire way of how I I experience my character and how my character experiences the world. And it was so freeing to be like, oh, I'm not just a third person past writer. I can do different things if I want to or for different projects. And one of the things that helped me see that was a book by Signa Pike. She did The Lost Queen, and that was first person. And then the second book in the series, I'm forgetting the name right now. I think it's The Forgotten Kingdom. So it keeps the point of view character from the first book, and she's in first person in the second book. But then there are two more POVs, and they are in third person. So the author is using it as a device for varying levels of proximity with the character. And I, and I just noticed that at, because I was trying to figure out how to write the next thing. And there are multiple stories that now I'm noticing that some POVs are in first and some are in third. And the, the author is doing that on purpose, right? So I guess the whole thing there is you don't have to have only one way to write. And it is quite a beautiful way to create those le- those levels and keeping those secrets if you want to by using your point of view. Mm. And I think it, it's so cool when you have that realization because it not only acknowledges that different stories call for different things, but also that you're not defined by just one specific thing. You can think of yourself differently and challenge yourself differently and allow yourself to grow differently. I think it was Vee Schwab who talked about how just through like exploring different stories, the voice changes, but also as a writer, you get to explore avenues of your craft that are exciting for you. And maybe not all of those stories are going to resonate with the same readers. So you might build a readership and then they have an expectation of this type of voice or this type of story. But you also kind of have to think about what it is that, if you want to, I suppose, um, but what it is that you want out of your career and how you want to progress with your stories, what you want to explore, where you're willing to go. And I think that's super exciting because it means that you get to do anything that you possibly want. You can also stay doing the same thing if you want and try to explore it in different ways. I have seen people, a lot of people use what you just mentioned, um, like switching with different characters in different POVs using different voices. And I think that's, that's really interesting because it's such a great tool that authors are very conscious about using for developing not only secrets, but microtensions, which is something I think about a lot when I write, you know, how to carry the big tension through on the page, but also how to keep people turning the page for the little things that are happening as they build up. And then not only that, but also how close you're bringing the reader to that character, how purposeful that is, and then what kind of secrets you want to keep from the reader and who's reliable and who isn't. So all of those kinds of things, like you can you can play around with so many cool, fun ways of exploring story when you open yourself up to that. And again, like you don't have to, but it's just so interesting to do. Actually, when you're talking about um, tension and microtension, um, there's a show called Beef that's out, okay? And there's something about it, because again, I, I think on some level, when you think about the conflicts these characters have, like they're from very different backgrounds um, on a lot of levels. And this whole story starts with like essentially a road rage incident and how it just escalates through their entire lives. And what happens at the beginning, there is just no freaking way you would guess what happens at the end. But as you go through episode to episode, you like, it just, yeah, I'm I'm waving my, my dagger. Um, it's intense. Okay. And, um, so anyway, it, you know, and there's something about it too. It was like, I, I needed to watch it because it hooked me, 
but I almost didn't want to watch it. And I guess I'm not selling it now, but I was so uncomfortable. Like it was so, I was so tense. I was so tense. But if you were looking for like page turning master classes, I feel like beef is what you want. Okay. Let's talk about this in terms of character and POV. How are we following the characters here? And what well, it, kind of perspective do you get from it? Like, are you is it is it like you're following one character at a time? So are you seeing everything through there? I don't know anything about the story. I know you don't because I know you didn't watch it after I told you to. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You look, at least I'm consistent and I meet your expectations. I'm sad. You at me. <laughs> <laughs> to be okay. fair, I okay. think you told us yesterday to go watch it. Like, no, it, <laughs> I did not. It was, it was a couple days ago. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I need at least five business days plus weekends. Okay, Nadine. So next week you watching it. <laughs> we'll you call put you yourself out. in the corner now. <laughs> but okay, so there's these. So there's two different POV characters, we'll say, and you get to see. I mean, they're both. Gosh, it's so like they're bad people, but relatable in that way. And as we're moving along, we do uncover their secrets. Gosh, I'm not even going to sell this well because I don't, I don't want to spoil anything. Ugh. Just go watch it. Okay, that's it. Okay, fine. All right. One thing that we have talked about before is how um, visual storytelling, like movies or shows, they have the aspect of like music and sound even if it's like more omniscient and that's something that is unique to visual storytelling but something that writers have on the page is that you can actually crawl into that person's head and know exactly what they're thinking which is is like a strength if you know how to use it or consciously not use and i haven't always watched like i don't watch a lot of tv but I have been watching a lot more lately, just consuming story in a way to see it differently than just my fantasy section, right? Um, Gabby, I actually have a question for you. Um, I'm wondering if you have found a difference in voice because you have written middle grade, YA, and adult. So I'm wondering if you feel your voice changes or if you if different things are required of you, depending on the age that you're writing for? So definitely different things are required of me, depending on the audience that I'm writing for. I think the most freeing thing that I've ever done is write a middle grade. I never expected to write a middle grade. And I came off the back of writing like a new adult story that sort of floated between could be YA, could be adult. And I spent a lot of time in that story finding my voice. And one of the things that when I came out of that and started writing the middle grade was that I, I really felt like I understood what my voice was. And then every story that I told after that was more about how can I use my voice to give voice to my character, to tell the story in a way that is doing their tale justice so that I'm not at the center of anything. I'm just there as a conduit. And I think there's so many different levels of how that plays out on the page. Things like language choice. And when I think about, I'm going to say, I'm just going to use the word vibes here because, and I know we joke about vibes a lot, but uh, Courtney, when you were talking earlier about writing in third person and like how close or how far, I just pulled up, I'd got this book of fairy tales the other day. And it's just like, a, it's a Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. And all of those storytelling voices, those very epic fantasy or, or like fairy tale voices are third person, past tense. And we all have a very specific idea in our minds, even if we can't pinpoint where it came from, we have a preconceived notion of what tales are to us as children and then moving through different stages of our lives. And when I think about it like that, it comes down to a certain level of expectation from people. And I know we have talked about expectation here before. And if you said that before the time, which is why people have things like genre and age group categories, and, and we have to say things like, this is a middle grade, this is a fantasy, this is sci-fi, this is contemporary and all of those things, because it helps people to understand what to expect. 
And then for me, my voice is really the thing that has to sit quietly while I give the stage to the characters of the story. And with middle grade, I feel really free. I feel like kids are so smart and we don't give them enough credit for that. And we think about like complexities of language and and stuff that doesn't matter because the thread and the moral of a story can be as big or as simple as you want it to be. And that for me is the thing that I have to grapple with when I'm t- when I'm deciding what is the audience of my story? How do I want to put it across? It's more, how can I make this relatable? How can I tell the, the story of this character in a way that feels like it will resonate with the people that I would like to tell it to? And then on a, on a more personal level, even if I'm writing a story for middle grade, I want an adult to be able to pick it up and still read it and feel like it can resonate with them on some level because we've still grown through like we've had to pass through those phases of life. And so, I, I mean, I couldn't give an adult book to a kid and expect that, have that same kind of expectation. But I think when you write for a younger audience, you also have to, for me at least, I feel like I want to also write for an older audience and that that is a, a story that I want to be able to kind of carry through time, at least the, the types of stories that I write. So that's the way that I approach it. I don't know if that answers your question, but... You know, two authors that come to mind when I think about um, people that have written for younger audiences whose stories transcend age is um, Garth Nix and Neil Gaiman. Yeah, and I think Neil Gaiman is just really fantastic with this as well because he uses different mediums too. So, I mean, his storytelling is just spread across platforms, regardless of where it started, you can read a Neil Gaiman comic, you can read a Neil Gaiman novel, and you can watch a Neil Gaiman show, and all of them, you can see him in that without him being center stage. And I think that's that's a really good example of what I mean by the voice can change depending on medium, character, audience, all of that kind of thing. But he is, he is like his brand, his his voice is in there in a way that is unapologetically him, and it's not loud. It's just the perfect balance, I would say. But you know what's just not fair is like his literal voice is so good. That is true. You know, I, you said something quite powerful, Gabby, when you said we don't give kids enough credit. And working in schools, there is such power in a picture book. And there is a whole revolution of teachers that are teaching middle grade high school with picture books because it's, it's accessible. It's more accessible for a lot more readers And they do tackle bigger themes and they are able to sort of let go of the having to be more mature just because they're older. They're like, I'm interacting with a picture book. I can, I can be silly. I can, or I can be serious or this can tell Mm -hmm. a tale or, and I sometimes forget that because I'm writing in adults, adult fantasy, because Mm -hmm. Because my day job was with little children, I needed something that was not little children, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are like that sometimes, where you need a different space than what you do every day to process and be creative as a mm-hmm. part of yourself. I think there's definitely something to be said for that. And on top of it, there's certain conventions within like writing for different in, in these different categories, like even just word counts, for example, you don't have the same amount of space in a middle grade that you have in a YA or that you then from YA jumping to adult, you just don't have it. And so you have to figure out how to tell a story with fewer words. You have to try to, again, as you said, let go of just certain judgments that you have as an adult. You know, when 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 I started writing fantasy, it was funny to me to share that with people and some people would go oh I don't read fantasy and it's just one of those things where um like I didn't mind it didn't bother me but it was just really interesting that some people look down on like just that whole category of we you know they only read like non-fiction and they're very serious about it and cool that's great for them and everything but when you are the storyteller you can't bring any of those like judgments in to your story when you're writing it and you also it's really unfair 
for you to assume that your readers will have those judgments. And that's why I feel like writing for kids is so freeing because they don't judge in the same way adults judge. They're just there for the story. They're there to enjoy it. And they're like, what's going to happen next? I, I accept everything, all the magic, all the stuff. I believe it. You know, as long as it, as long as there's nothing strange happening in the sense of it's inconsistent and they have a big question about how that's possible, everything is possible. And that is that that whole message of everything is possible is so beautiful. And I think something that this is why I love writing for middle grade, something that you can just internalize as an adult and carry with you, even if middle grade is not something that you read. But I do recommend that all adults should read middle grade. I was just thinking about how you were talking about there are certain word counts for like middle grade YA adult and as like a parent as a teacher I I see that there is a gap and I realize that publishing is a business and that's why it is but we need more accessible books like graphic novels at higher ages for our teens which I think is growing but when you're at the school level it's it's missing like there isn't that much but we also need more YA word count level in middle grade because there are voracious readers as well as struggling readers and I feel like those are two big holes in the market and um, I'm not a publisher but as someone who has to recommend reading for children I'm struggling and I'm finding that there are holes so if you write in there there are people that want your books so please write them and if you are a publisher please publish them because we need them. We talked to uh, Jaquetta Namafaldman about this as well, and she's wonderful. And we just talked about how there's within middle grade, and this is the same thing that happens, with, you know, in in the in the bridging spaces. So, middle grade is generally like eight to twelve years old, and then if you look on the lower end and you look on the upper end, because eight to twelve is a it's a very big range. Your eight-year-olds are not the same as your 12-year-olds, right? And then if you look at YA, you suddenly are going from like 13, 14 up to 19, 18, 19, which like that again, huge, huge difference. But so those little fringe spaces, the eight, the seven, eight-year-olds, and then the 12, 13-year-olds, and then the 14, and then going up to like 19, 20, that's problematic in the sense that there are books written in those spaces but they're still categorized either within the, the big pool of this is middle grade and this is YA. And so you have to sift through them. And this is where we depend on our teachers and our librarians and our voracious readers who go, okay, if you like this, then you might like to read that. And you just have to kind of get a sense of like what people like and enjoy and how you follow the trail. But I do think that there's the people who push the boundaries of those word limits. Um, the Girl Who Drank the Moon, I think is a good example. That book is quite long for middle grade, but it's just so fantastic and so many people love it. And it doesn't matter that it's long because everybody's along for the ride. People talk about this book, list this book as a favorite and recommend it to other people. So there are like those fringe books which still sit within an age category, but which have higher word counts or even lower word counts that hit the right find the find their audience basically they find the right readers but it's very difficult to do because I, I don't think that the books aren't there to be honest I think that they are there I just think that the, that the way that we define and let them sit in different categories is very it's very difficult for people to find them and access them in the, in the ways that that we like we talk all the time about how there should be a new adult category and everybody knows in our minds, we know that this ex that it exists, it's a thing, but it's not something you'll find on like in a Barnes and Noble or an Indigo. And it really, to me, that's just, it's kind of the, the industry being slow and a little bit lazy about it because they can make that change. Like if people can have book talk tables, then they can have a new shelf for a new adult and they can have, you know, they can, they can branch out a little. I think that like a lot of the book talk tables, like especially like the spicy book talk tables, I feel like almost all of those are new adult, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. It's like they put them all out on the table. Yeah, it's just to me that the, the issue is really like we see it as storytellers. We see that when we're trying to define where our stories need to go, 
there's no clean category for how to put it, right? And so we see that, but then think about it from the perspective of a consumer, somebody who goes into the bookstore and goes, I need to read this book. And then you start talking to the booksellers and you start talking to the librarians if you're walking into a library and you start telling them what it is that you like to read. And then they recommend something to you or you read something on Kindle and it recommends similar books to you. It's because other readers have found it that way. And that's how recommendations happen. So it's all this, this human factor, which because that exists, the categories do not. And it's really just that there's no push for it to happen. There's we want it, but none of us are pushing for it, really. <laughs> yeah, and the ones with book talk or with Bookstagram, they're not little kids, right? Like my, no. <laughs> my middle schooler is not on book talk asking for this kind of thing so publishers don't hear what the middle graders want and but their parents or their adults or whoever are the ones buying the books for them and I've had multiple times with teachers or um, librarians be like what what book does your kid want to read I'm like I don't know can you tell me what my my kid can read because (laughs) she's reading through everything but then I've also had students who are struggling but then also have like the social dilemma of not wanting to appear stupid for not reading like a thick book. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think at the school level, it's getting a lot better of being like, who cares what you read as long as you're reading, as long as you're enjoying. And that is like the, the main foundation of teaching reading is teaching for enjoyment because that in that translates to lifelong learning instead of like pulling teeth. Right. With our older readers, who are at a a lower level, it's how do we incorporate reading materials for them that are accessible, that they can feel successful, and that are interesting to them. Because maybe your child is reading at, you know, they they need like those easy readers, but they're not going to read about Pete the Cat when they're in grade nine, you know? So it's, I'm seeing the holes Maybe they are there, but maybe they're not, but they're not being super accessible for teachers, for librarians, for parents to like walk into the bookstore and look at the shelf. Because really, I don't like to talk to people in the store. I go and I go and I look at the books. I avoid all the people. And I know a lot of other people also get nervous talking to people in the store, right? Well, you want to go in, get your drink then go and wander the shelves, like pet all the books, avoid eye contact. recipe for a good day yeah I will I will add on that I think another place that especially if you were looking for like comics style stuff to go to your local comic book shop and get recommendations from them because um I have done that where I'm at and they're lovely and they um it's not just for like all the Marvel and DC stuff there. Like they have things for younger readers. They know what's hot and what's coming out. So I would add that in addition to, you know, seeking out your library and such. I do think that um, what you mentioned earlier, Nadine, with graphic novels, I think that is really expanding a lot and that the publishing industry is seeing the potential of it because, so I see on the middle grade level, full novels that are also turned into graphic novels. And I'm thinking things like Wings of Fire or Percy Jackson, they have both, right? And I find that wonderful because it really is making all of those stories accessible to any level of reader. They can have the same or similar experience of the same story, but through different mediums. And then adults are also like now slowly graphic novels are are coming into, into play with that. And I'm just thinking about the way that I've seen it play out. And I I have to be honest, I haven't read many graphic novels and most of the ones that I've read are, are middle grade. But there's obviously a bit of a payoff, right? There's um, a trade-off, I mean, of how much information you can put in to the story when you have the images that you're showing now because you have to you know you have you have space issues again so in in the novel you have a word count and here you have a certain amount of space that you can um that you can utilize and I don't know all the rules of graphic novels but I have read for instance a Percy Jackson novel and then read the graphic novel and felt that a lot of the information was stuff I had to then 
like fill in bits, which is fine. I still got the gist of the story. But then when I read the full novel, some of those descriptions were very different to the way that I imagined it when I read the graphic novel. So it becomes a different experience, which is still fun because you can do both, right? But then that's interesting to me because the stories are written from just taking it back to like character and POV, when we read the novels and we think of the main character who we follow throughout the story, and then we look at the graphic novel, we're more removed from the story than before. So it feels like you're kind of watching it from the outside. And when you're reading it, you again can be immersed in a different way because you're not taking it on visually. So your senses are experiencing the story in a different way. And so when you write for different mediums and you think about character development and POV, you also then have to think about the ways in which your story is being consumed. And I think this is so interesting as well when you think about audiobooks. Because sometimes when I'm reading out loud, and I do <laughs> I do, do this, especially with my own books, and I'm trying to think about like, am I pacing this correctly? How would I read this if I was narrating this as an audiobook? There's so much to subtext and like things that are italicized in the text as a thought, something which is kind of written, because I write in first person usually, um, which is kind of written as part of the internalization and then switches to dialogue. How does that voice change? And how does it come across to give strength to the character and how are people going to hear it or consume it. Personally, I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks. I get stressed out when I listen to them, so I can't do it. And I'm interested, Nadine, because I know you listen to a lot of audiobooks. What is that? Do you do you notice a difference in like when you're reading with your eyeballs and when you're consuming story through audio? Have you listened to a story that you've also read before? And how is that different for you when you're trying to be in the shoes of the character, regardless of whether yes. it's like third or first person. Absolutely. So Saba Tahir's An Ember in the Ashes, I, w- I devoured that series last year and um, you had read it before me. So I was live texting you as I read it and different mediums be- became available for my library at different points. So I read it as an ebook, I listened to audiobook and I read paper copies. So I read all three. And it was, it was a different experience, and I would say I love audiobooks. And as an educator, when you're, I teach grade ones, so I'm teaching children how to read. And one of the biggest things you tell them is have an affluent adult read to them because that will, that increases their language acquisition. And even if they're not reading, if they're not decoding with their eyeballs, hearing the language is what's going to help their brain. And when I was just struggling to read with my eyeballs, my writing got so much better just by listening to story. And the first time I really realized how different it was with an audiobook versus like written was I was at a writing retreat and we had to read out our writing to a little critique group. So I was with two other writers sitting on our bed the night before we're going to critique and we practiced reading it aloud and we had all read each other's writing before we had read those excerpts but hearing the author read it out how they had experienced it or how they meant it to be was very different to how I had read it in my head and so and I'm just like I can read out loud that's fine but when you listen to an audiobook they are actors and they the way that they perform is an art in itself And it's a different experience, like you were saying, a different mode of experiencing story. And I can tell when things are italicized or when someone else is speaking because they change their voice. And it is just a very different experience. And I don't lose that closeness that I thought like, oh, because it's not my own voice in my head reading, because I was worried like I'm going to lose the closeness of the character. I didn't find that. And yeah, I just, I love audio for that in that it builds my language acquisition. It transfers to my writing. I can hear what I like the sound of. And I I take notes of lines that I like the sound of. The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. So that was written in Third Omniscient. But that was, that was a beautiful book. I listened to it Last summer, it was during a heat dome. It was 43 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it was so hot. I was sweating. I was outside watering my plants, hoping that they wouldn't die. And 
this is a book in like Russia in winter and they're like sleeping on top of a stove. But I was, I was in it. I was listening. I was there. I, I could see the snow. I could feel the frostbite. I could feel the warm stove. And then coming back to Saba Tahir is when I started hearing Elias's voice, the actor's voice when I was reading the book. Mm. And just that's one one thing one of my wishes one day when I when I get when I get my book deal when I sell my books is I really want audio rights or audiobooks to be part of that as well not just paperback like I do want to see it in the store that is like a dream to hold your book in your hands but I want to hear someone else echo back my art to me in their voice and that is something that I really look forward to one day I love that and I like what you said about the narrators being actors, because I feel like, and, and again, I probably have said this before, I feel like when we tell story, we have to be actors in a way. We have to put ourselves into a position where we are acting out that character. So, and, and even if the voice sounds different in our head than to when somebody else reads it, I feel like that's okay because it means that somebody has taken that story and made it their own and interpreted it in a way that is theirs. And I think that's kind of a little bit something, uh, one of the reasons that I get a bit stressed out about audiobooks, because I feel like it's um, like somebody else is telling me the voice of a character that I've pictured in it, that I've um, imagined in a different way. And it's interesting to me because I can, there's some audiobooks that I can listen to, but it really depends on my mood and what I'm doing, and like a whole bunch of different factors that come into play. But I will know immediately when I hear a voice, whether or not it's something that I can fall into or not. And it's interesting to me because it has nothing to do with the actual story. It has to do with the level of interpretation of tone and the way that it carries the story to me. So I feel like there's just, there's the, there's the, the layer of the storyteller being the conduit, and then this added layer of the narrator being another conduit and how do we relate to that and I think for me a part of it is accents as well which is something I'm very sensitive to um, like just um, through my own experiences and things that I personally have struggled with um, how I can relate to a character through um, the way that they tell a story. I was going to ask about accents and whether you notice them because I, do, I can yeah. tell all all three of us have very different accents. And um, so I moved to Canada from South Africa when I was 10. And so everyone made fun of the way that I spoke. So I changed the way that I spoke. So now I sound Canadian, at least like West Coast Canadian. Um, but I do notice accents and word choice. So sometimes I'll sort of translate meaning for people. You know, um, like a banknote or paper money or, yeah, when I'm writing, I'm like, do you mean this? I still remember, I still laugh when I wrote pants in my draft and Gabby's like, um, what do you think about trousers? I'm like, why? She's like, well, pants where, where I'm from is referring to underwear all the time. So now I never write pants. Uh, I only talk about trousers. So if you ever read my writing in the future, <laughs> that's just something that you will know. <laughs> it's my fault, guys. That's why she doesn't say pants. Um, I definitely notice accents. I, I think I'm very sensitive to them probably in a way that is um, slightly unusual. So I grew up in just um, a lot of different places. And my accent is just some mix of that history um but also like I was made fun of a lot for the way that I spoke and I had to kind of change the way that I spoke in different places because otherwise people would not listen to me or take me seriously and I wasn't considered smart enough if I spoke one way and I wasn't considered to be like a part of my culture if I spoke another way and then I lived in England for a while and sometimes people didn't understand the things that I was saying and it was really hard for me to figure out just how to how to communicate with people um and i'm not generally very extroverted so it's not something that i can just be like oh whatever i if i'm interacting with somebody i really want that interaction to be meaningful and so i had to think about the way that i speak and so i notice the way that other people speak and i try to be very respectful of 
you know, if there's something that I don't understand when somebody's talking to me because they pronounce something differently, um, then I'm very aware of that. And I and I try to, you know, have a, a, a respectful conversation um, and ask in a way that is not hurtful because of my own experiences. And then also just to to be very kind of like I'm kind of silly about it in in ways where I will pronounce words incorrectly and I know that probably a lot of the words that I pronounce are incorrect and I just go ahead and do it because I feel like a lot of the words that I've learned are words that I've learned through reading and I didn't you know I grew up with when audiobooks were not a thing and so the way that I pronounce words is the way that I read them and also like between British pronunciation and South African pronunciation and then American pronunciation. There's so many different ways to say different words. And I think um, one of the things, so I, I purposefully will just pronounce a word the way that I think it is pronounced, the way that I pronounce it in my head, because I feel like, um, especially when I'm like talking around kids or trying to just communicate with people in a way that feels meaningful, that I wanted to be honest about the way that I experience the world and also to kind of give people the freedom to feel like it doesn't matter if you don't know words like you can if you don't know how to say them in a way that's acceptable like it's fine you know what the word means we all know what the word means and if you don't know you can ask or you can google it or whatever but just to to not have that be a barrier I love that and I feel like um you know, there's a kind of gentleness to that perspective. And I think the world could use a lot more of that. So I still pronounce automaton and not automaton. I know I like, I just, I learned it reading. I think it was clockwork angel with Cassandra Clare was the first and only time I've ever seen that word. (laughs) And then someone in our writing group had it in their, in their work piece. And someone said it out loud and I'm like, like what? That's but how like, you say the word? <laughs> but literally, this is the only time you would even use it, which would be to say, like, I don't, like, how do you say this word? Like, I have never heard that word in the world. Uh, uh, I can't even Outside say, uh, of, outside auto- of fiction. Autom- autom- automaton. Okay. <laughs> it's like a who robot. Sent the, who sent the Vista shit, the source? Who sent oh, the source me. name? <laughs> it was like three things that are really hard to say I'm sorry I need help and Worcestershire sauce oh I don't that even know one how is to hard. say it Worcestershire Worcestershire when, when I was little See, we all say say Worcester sauce like they just like said it's Worcester sauce and I'm like but there's a whole bunch of letters in the middle like how do so we are say they all we say it similarly but the, we say the W is a V so Worcester sauce oh which huh. is funny but like that is interesting because that's the, that would be the Afrikaans pronunciation of it. Mm, so does anyone know how to say it properly? Because yeah, just like that. That's the way you say it your way. <laughs> I we all know what it means. And Courtney says it her way, and then we're all free to say it how we want. <laughs> we all know what it is. And do you want to know um, how to say uh, zucchini? It's a uh, courgette. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> vegetables and such uh should we move into snacks yes who's gonna go first what's your snacks this week or lately or today or later you know what I got this beautiful butternut squash that I haven't gotten to roast yet but I love roasting Mm. butternut squash in the oven um my kids don't like it but I like it so then I have it for leftovers with my lunch usually with some tomatoes, um, maybe some arugula or rocket, depending where you are in the world, and cucumbers. And I always love some goat cheese. Ooh, that sounds like a nice combo. I had mango sorbet, and it was so good. That's what I had before we hopped on this call. I just ate a bunch of it, and it was really, it really hit the spot. It's very, um, it's the the Taliente. It's just the brand, but it's a mango sorbet. It's so good. Um, I I had that. And then what did I eat today? I had that and I had popcorn. 
Popcorn seems like a theme lately. <laughs> yeah, well, as um, and we we're a little free here in terms of how we talk about things. I'm I'm a little bit in a funk lately, and it's a burrito time for me. Just uh, we talk about being a burrito, but like kind of just curling up and being a burrito, and that's just what it's like. I'm hoping my snacks get better and like you know, yeah. more elaborate. <laughs> I fully support burrito days. Um. And for everybody listening, a burrito day to me is just like literally wrapping myself up in a blanket like a burrito. Yeah. Um, and just living that way. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's it's a good time. Um, and I think, I mean, I would like to do like a whole episode just about burritos because I feel like there's so much to say about burritos. Maybe so burritos as a metaphor. Yeah. Burrito I mean, I mean sure. But, but, but also, also just <laughs> literal. <laughs> um but okay what have I been having for a snack a couple things one of the like the last two days have been really really hot here and I've been having this vegan ice cream which is too sweet so personally would not recommend but actually I think a lot of people would like it it's um the magnum salted caramel vegan ice cream have you had that oh uh the I think I've had that brand yeah it's it's is very it chocolate covered. It's it's covered in chocolate. It's yeah. salted caramel ice cream in the middle, and like there's literally nothing wrong with it. It tastes fine. Like, it tastes like ice cream should take ice cream should taste. You can't tell that it's vegan, but I just don't really like a lot of sweet things, and they don't have like a darker version of it. It's all mm. just like sugar, sugar, sugar. Eat me, and it's so hot that <laughs> I'm like switching between frozen drinks and yogurt and things like that and um Bree's looking at me and saying yogurt so that's why he says yogurt <laughs> it's it's all correct as we've learned all correct uh, except for that because that is yogurt <laughs> it's a, 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 a marital can, can spat <laughs> <laughs> it's one I want um no I'm kidding <laughs> oh man all kidding. right well with that um <laughs> Be brave. Stay beastly. And burrito if you need to. <laughs> true, true. All right. Well, I'm proud of that. Week. I made that up on, a, on the spot. So. You, you did fantastic. You did fantastic. <laughs>